For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. The fate of Oklahoma's execution protocol now rests in the hands of a U.S. district judge. After six days of testimony, attorneys opposed to the current system say Oklahoma's three-drug protocol violates the constitutional prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. The state, meanwhile, is poised to schedule more than 25 executions if the judge rules in favor of the protocols. Ryan, about how long will it take before we get an answer on this? I mean, we're, we're probably a month away at least. Uh, the, you know, I think the judge mentioned that he had over 100 pages of notes that he had taken just personally throughout the, the course of the trial. Uh, and that's, that's not even uh, taking into consideration the, the mountains of evidence and testimony that was introduced throughout the course of the trial. And then there's going to be you know, post-trial information that uh, the, uh, the state, as well as the public defenders that were working this case uh, on behalf of the, the condemned on, on death row in Oklahoma, they're going to have uh, some post-trial uh, uh, motions that they file. They that may have some more information in there. There's the chance that the judge, in reviewing all of this evidence, comes back and says, "You know, I've got some more questions on this. Can you brief this? Can you submit more uh, estimo- uh, testimony or evidence uh, addressing these particular questions and issues?" You know, I think that uh, while we're waiting on that, you know, there are there are things that we we do know. You know, one is that. Executions are increasingly rare in the United States. Um, as the New York Times uh, reported that the governors of three states have issued moratoriums. Governors in, in states that have death penalties still, uh, they've issued, three of those have issued moratoriums, and only 14 states where, the cap, where capital punishment is currently legal have carried out an execution in the last decade. Um, we know that it's even not even a matter of states that have this. It's really just a matter of counties. We know the prosecutors get it wrong, that there are innocent people on death row, including right here in Oklahoma, uh, and that we see the death penalty being used more as a plea uh, negotiation leverage tool than an actual punishment. Um, and, you know, I think finally we we have to, in this over the course of this time, lawmakers in Oklahoma, I, I encourage them to kind of wrestle with this idea that uh, it's a fool's quest to try to find a humane to kill the condemned. Uh, and that trying to sanitize this is something uh, we're not going to ever do because this is inherently brutal. And so, you know, I, I don't have enough faith that the government can get the death penalty right. Uh, I just really don't. And it, and it just it's beyond me how so many of my fellow Oklahomans don't trust the government in other ways, but will trust the government with this power. But uh, as long as we do have this, this is an option for punishment, Oklahoma, I, I hope that uh, we can get beyond this charade of lethal injection and Look at other other methods, uh, including things like the firing squad that I think, one, make us confront as a society what we're actually doing. And two, uh, don't require us to conduct science experiments on on human beings. Neva. Well, I mean, bottom line to the six day trial in federal court is that it was a battle of the experts. I mean, you have compelling testimony presented by both sides. I mean, one side saying basically that this, uh, uh, if this goes on, what we have is the 21st century burning at the stake in essence. And then you have the state making the case and saying that that it is, uh, uh, 
in their in their estimation that when the first drug is administered that it is a induces a general anesthesia and that means that there's no pain so uh, you've got diametrically opposite points of view on this a lot of testimony supporting the arguments on both sides and frankly it it comes down to now a uh, a federal judge uh, and as you said ryan who took by his own admission taking taking time to point this out to the attorneys on monday when he was um, uh, laying the groundwork, he said he had taken 103 pages of handwritten notes. I mean, that's a, that's a rather staggering uh, number when you think about it uh, for someone sitting on the bench, hearing these arguments, uh, hearing these experts go back and forth. Uh, so I think um, uh, it will be several months. I mean, obviously the judge has 30 days to uh, uh, to f- form his uh, written ruling, and then there'll be 30 days of appeal. And, and so this will go on for a while. And it is, it is an important, uh, uh, an, an important uh, discussion. Um, and we, you know, I mean, there's certainly different points of view in terms of the death penalty conversation is one thing. This is quite another. This is determining whether or not the state has the, uh, has the right to continue to go on with this, uh, with this particular procedure uh, of lethal injection in the state of Oklahoma. So uh, we'll watch this with interest. I'm sure we'll continue to talk about it for some time to come. A prominent Oklahoma City attorney is challenging the special election to replace U.S. Senator Jim Inhofe. Stephen Jones, who represented Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma City bombing, says the voting can't happen until after Inhofe actually leaves office. The state passed a law last year allowing for the special election to coincide with the general election if the announcement was made before March 1st. Neva, do you think Jones has a case here? Well, I, I think it it will be interesting to see how the case is laid out. Oral arguments have been set in the uh, state Supreme Court for March 22nd. So this is going to uh, start moving fairly quickly. Um, it, there are a lot of questions. I mean, certainly, I mean, uh, we have attorney Stephen Jones laying out his case, uh, citing the 17th Amendment as kind of the, the uh, backbone of, of his argument. But we also have, I mean, if we think back, I mean, to filling the uh, uh, U.S. Senate seats in the procedure, uh, former Governor Mary Fallon you know, when the late Dr. Tom Coburn uh, announced his retirement, but that he would remain in his seat until the end of of the congressional session, that's set up for a special election. So there's not only precedent and cases in Oklahoma, but certainly all across the country. So it it, it it's not a simple just. Uh, set up that is going to have a clear answer. The court is going to have to uh, take a look at this. And quite frankly, let's talk about the political dimension to this. I mean, if the court were to kick it out, it would go back to the governor to uh, to make an appointment uh, to uh, the United States Senate at, at, at some point, assuming, you know, assuming all of this doesn't get totally reset. But I think the long and the short for most political observers right now is that it will have its hearing, it will have its day in court, the Supreme Court uh, certainly will will make their decision, but uh, I think it would be shocking to many observers to uh, think that we're going to see a change in, in what occurs, but rather we'll see two United States Senate elections on the ballot uh, this election cycle. Ryan. Well, and I agree with Neva. I, I think that I think that two things can be correct at the same time. I think that 
Stephen Jones, one of the, the most uh, prolific and accomplished attorneys in, in Oklahoma history. Uh, I, I, I read his, his uh, uh, petition to the court and the brief in support, and it is very compelling. I got, I got to say, if, if I were on the court, you know, I'm, I'm leaning towards uh, Mr. Jones uh, on this case, and, and I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. But I also think, as Neva said, regardless of what happens with that litigation, we're going to have two U.S. Senate elections on the ballot in November of 2022, because even, you know, and the governor and, and Senator, Governor Stitt and, and Senator Inhofe could uh, short circuit this litigation uh, this afternoon if they wanted to uh, and moot this case entirely. And they could do that by, you know, the governor or by Senator Inhofe submitting a an immediate resignation uh, from the United States Senate, Governor Stitt appointing Senator Inhofe to serve as a caretaker uh, for that seat until the special election takes place in November of 2022. And we end up with the same result. And frankly, I think that, you know, if that could happen, we end up with a result with a result that's constitutional. Because if you if you look at the, the language uh, of, of the 17th Amendment, it only it only empowers the the calling of a special election um, and to, to fill a seat in the event of a vacancy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, that, and that, that has been, uh, there's not a lot of litigation around that, but if you look back to the 17th amendment, you know, the original resolution that Congress was considering did have language in it that would have given the states more power and authority over how they, how they handle this, that was taken out. Um, and we, we were left with a very clear grant that said, if a state legislature wants to, they can, they can, they don't have to, the state legislature can empower the state's executive, our governor, to be able to fill a vacancy. But even still, we still have the question of, of a vacancy and um, both judicial cases and Senate rules. And it's the United States Senate that ultimately decides qualifications for its membership and whether a person meets that, uh, have said that a vacancy isn't prospective. It isn't speculative. It's, you know, when, when you've got an immediate resignation, uh, removal from office, uh, or death, mm-hmm. and you know neither none of those things have happened right now. Uh, and as Mr. Jones points out, Senator Inhofe could re- could revoke his uh, his unconditional um, uh, resignation uh, from from office. And who's to who's to hold him to account for that? You'd have to have two thirds of the United States Senate to say, well, you you said that you were going to re- resign unconditionally. Well, that's not going to happen. They're not going to do that. There's no recourse from the state legislature or from the governor if he revokes that. So I do think that the, the issues raised in this in this litigation are are worthwhile uh, and meritorious. And and frankly, like I said, I, I think that there's there's a simple fix uh, that that could you know moot this thing entirely. I just want to point out though, I, in, in reading about this, uh, I learned that the 17th Amendment, before it was even officially ratified, there were some states that began holding advisory popular votes. Um, to uh-huh. invite, and the, and the legislature Here said, "Here we the go." Legislature <laughs> said, "We'll hold because before the Seventeenth Amendment, state legislatures right. selected yeah. uh, senators. You know, Seventeenth Amendment provides for direct election. So the the Seventeenth Amendment was ratified in in 1913, became official in 1913. In 1912, uh, Oklahoma became the first state to allow popular vote to advise the legislature, and they said that they would bind themselves to it, and they did. Um, and we ended up in 1912 re-electing Robert Owen by an advisory popular vote, 
uh, even before the thir- uh, before the Seventeenth Amendment uh, became effective. So, I, I think that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that you know, there's there's a this is this is great for for political science and, and history nerds, um, but the outcome ultimately will be the same, and that you know we're gonna ha- we're gonna have this open seat in, in November. Yeah, I think something though to point out also, you talked about the resignation, uh, Ryan, is the fact that last year the Senate bill that was passed, um, it specifically talked about if there was a U.S. Senate vacancy, how it would be filled in the instance of what was described as an irrevocable resignation or vacancy. Um, The letter that Senator Inhofe uh, submitted was an irrevocable letter uh, that he outlined that uh, basically basically set the stage that he could not, in fact, change his mind or come back and kind of skew or or kind of (laughs) mess up what would already be be in uh, be in progress and process with a with a special election? So this Senate bill uh, 959, I think it was last year. I mean, the things that that now are probably laid on the table in addition to the 17th 17th Amendment. And of course, Stephen Jones, I believe in his brief, argued that uh, that uh, certainly the 17th Amendment superseded anything that the, the mm-hmm. state wanted to do in terms of the legislature changing laws or, or uh, uh, prescribing specific uh, things in terms of special elections. So it's, uh, I mean, it will be a fascinating case uh, uh, that the, uh, the court will have uh, uh, to take a look at and hear oral arguments. And that's just uh, uh, literally a couple of weeks away. Well, and it, it's got to be. We got filing coming up in April. Yeah, uh, they, they, they right. need to resolve that's this. Right. And that's right. So I'll, I'll be there watching. I'll bring the popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> the Oklahoma Health Department is choosing to no longer provide daily COVID-19 updates. Instead, the agency is planning to put out a weekly report along with its epidemiology report on Thursday. Ryan, do you think we've reached a point to no longer be getting daily numbers? I think so. And, you know, I think that um, I think that this is a responsible move uh, by the Department of Health. I think that it's, uh, you know, and they've they've said that this doesn't mean if if we don't have other spikes or other variants that come out that that we can't go back to daily numbers. But they did point out even even in Omicron uh, that the daily numbers weren't a full picture because that, that spike was moving so fast that the daily numbers were maybe giving us some idea of what was happening, but it wasn't the be all and end all uh, data point that uh, that health uh, healthcare providers and, and researchers were looking at to understand where this variant was moving around the state and how it was moving. So daily numbers, very important in a spike. They don't give us every, all of the information, but uh, I really think that the health department right now, uh, the CDC uh, are, are moving in the right direction of, of recognizing that the pandemic is transitioning if it hasn't already transitioned into an endemic. Um, this is, you know, very likely going to be a uh, something that we just we deal with. I mean, the 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 nineteen seventeen flu became, uh, you know, the, the flu that uh, we all deal with, um, and the uh, and the, you know the, the common cold virus. I mean, those are those are things that um, at, at once were at pandemic stage and and then ultimately became endemic where they're, they're here with us, uh, for who knows how long, uh, you know, and, and we still need to take precautions. There may be an instance where, um, this becomes seasonal and the, the health department may want to, you know, ramp up reporting during, uh, during surges that happen during seasons. We may have, you know, 
uh, mask requirements or something like that that go along with that. And I, frankly, I think that that's where the public wants us to go. Um, and, and I think that we, we learned throughout COVID that just because something was the right thing to do uh, didn't mean that everybody was going to do it. And we, we ended up in these huge political fights over it. I feel like if we can get to a point where the um, restrictions and precautions that we're all asked to take are tied to some particular moment or event, rather than like, we're just going to all have to mask up to the, to the end of time. Uh, you know, that that's just not workable. It's not feasible. And we saw that people abandoned that. So uh, I'm hoping that the shift to an endemic uh, outlook will give us uh, as, as just, you know, people walking around in Oklahoma, uh, you know, better information on, on how to deal with a particular day or a particular outbreak moving forward. Neva. I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, what we've seen and what the last, uh, even the last update showed is that there was the seven-day average had dropped dramatically. Uh, the hospitalization rate dropped dramatically statewide. So uh, it was time to make this uh, transition. And I think uh, the uh, the daily updates uh, at 11 o'clock every morning and sometimes on Saturday through the through the uh, period when we really had the surge and, and throughout the, the entire uh, a pandemic uh, period where we were having uh, having this not only in Oklahoma but across the nation. So we're seeing a shift, and I think Ryan is right. I think it's uh, I think uh, uh, folks, by and large, are uh, uh, it's it's a sigh of relief that we're seeing uh, you know we're seeing a new uh, kind of a new period now where we can move uh, kind of out from under this uh, um, uh, this this atmosphere that, as Ryan said, it has been uh, very contentious, has been very challenging on all fronts. And we know, certainly, as we've talked about many times, uh, the um, um, the impact that it's that it's had on 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 all of our citizens in Oklahoma and across the nation. And certainly those first responders, healthcare providers, uh, frontline folks that have uh, borne the brunt of that for now several years. So um, it, it, it's something that uh, uh, the health department, it gives them an opportunity to kind of shift back and do many of the other tasks that they're, that they are responsible for and be able to uh, play catch up. I think in a lot of areas where they've had to sideline uh, much of what they had done prior to this period of the pandemic and now, uh, now the endemic as, as it's described. And I think Neva will agree with me that you know just because we, we see numbers going down, just because this is moving from pandemic to endemic uh, stage of, of, a, of a public health uh, situation, it doesn't lessen the severity of, of COVID uh, and that there are families and individuals out there that are still contracting COVID you know, and those that have vulnerable health situations uh, you know still are in real danger from COVID. And um, even though we may be, you know, see a relaxing of, of standards uh, of, of precautions generally, which you know I, I welcome enthusiastically, uh, you know we still need to respect um, the the health situations of other folks. And I mean, if you're in a hospital or if you're around somebody that's vulnerable, you know, respect that. Uh, you know, don't you know don't don't take this as license to impose yourself on 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 you know what how they need to define their health care. A bill gaining support at the state capitol authorizes more research in psychedelic psilocybin, also known as magic mushrooms. The legislation from Lawton Republican Representative Daniel Pay allows for state universities and research institutions to study the positive uses of the substances on mental health issues from addiction to post-traumatic stress disorder. 
Ryan, why do supporters feel this measure is needed? Well, because, I mean, we, we have for 60 years in this country uh, shelved important research, largely shelved, and it hasn't been entirely uh, put on, on, on the shelf. But, I mean, we have ignored uh, the amazing potential of psychedelic uh, therapeutics, not just with, with uh, psilocybin that we see you know, as, as a uh, component of you know, what, what folks call magic mushrooms, uh, but, the, but the psilocybin component, but everything from, and of course this bill doesn't touch on this, but you know, things like LSD or MDMA or DMT, these, these, other, these other forms of, of treatment that were in heavy research uh, in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, uh, and even into the 60s, uh, done legally uh, and under uh, medical supervision. And then we saw uh, an effort to you know, push back on that, uh, that, that led to the criminalization of, and, and the, ultimately the drug war. Uh, and as a result, you know, one of the casualties of the drug war was this amazing opportunity, scientific opportunities that we have uh, with these drugs. And, um, I think that, you know, we are, we're slowly waking up as a nation and as a state from, uh, the, the, the delusions that we, that we adopted, uh, collectively during the drug war. And we're seeing that, wait a second, these things do hold promise. And we've seen, uh, you know, trials that have been going on, very limited trials that have been going on around the nation and have had tremendous success. And in, in particular, when we talk about, you know, psilocybin, therapy uh, with veterans, uh, with the veteran community, uh, individuals suffering from PTSD, from their service to our nation, uh, incredibly high and just uh, unacceptable, uh, unacceptably high suicide rates. We see this has a huge effect on reducing that and improving the, the quality of life, uh, in particular for these veterans. I, I, I think that it goes well beyond the veteran community. Uh, the, the mental health situation in Oklahoma is abysmal. Uh, and we, we shouldn't put something on, uh, we shouldn't say that we're not going to, you know, use something just because, uh, it's, it was caricatured and vilified during the, the war on drugs unnecessarily. And, uh, you know, I, I welcome this. I, I applaud, uh, representatives pay and, uh, representative Phillips for having the courage, uh, to come up and, and talk about this because, you know, often what happens is, you know, like when we start, first started talking about marijuana reform in Oklahoma, everybody made Cheech and Chong jokes and, you know, it's, it's kind of this playground atmosphere, but this is serious. This is science. Uh, this is medicine. And this is an opportunity for Oklahoma as the entire nation begins to you know, change its mind on, on the drug war. This is an opportunity for Oklahoma to be a leader in this regard and, and to serve our people. Neva. Well, I mean, the bill, as it's written, would allow for clinical trials. I mean, I think it's interesting that 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 there's not, from what I've been able to see, there's not been that much discussion by uh, the university medical community or others about really uh, promoting or being uh, being engaged in wanting to be part of these clinical trials. Most of the research really has come out of one major uh, university, Johns Hopkins, uh, which has a center on um, on this type of research, uh, and one of the only institutions like this in the world, I think. So I, I think there's some bigger questions that the public may, as they pay more attention to this bill, now that it's come out of the House, going over to the Senate, 
uh, is the fact that let's remember, I mean, that these psychedelics are still schedule one drugs. They're federally illegal. So uh, if there's going to be research, if these folks uh, want to have these clinical trials, that's one thing. But my my um, surprise in reading uh, this this House bill 3414 was that it also lessens the penalty for those that are caught with psychedelics under, a, uh, I think, one point five grams to just a $400 fine. So if we're talking about, I mean, we're, we're kind of mixing a lot of apples and oranges, I think, in this in this equation. I think no one disputes that there is um, a need to be on cut on the cutting edge of trying to address the concerns uh, that, that are significant in terms of mental health issues uh, in our country. And we can quote any statistic to make the case. I mean, they, they use the suicide rates and other statistics, which are uh, in in Oklahoma alarmingly high but I think I think in terms of this discussion on legislation and moving forward that it needs to it needs to be clear that this is not just you know is this another attempt to just broaden the long-term view of let's just legalize everything and um, and and that that was kind of as you said Ryan some of the initial conversation with medical marijuana I mean uh, people understood that there was a need they were very supportive of the idea that for medical purposes uh, this this uh, was something that Oklahomans said okay but did it open the door to just summarily uh, suggesting that everyone is is in favor of legalization of marijuana across the board recreationally I think that's still a debatable question so so I think magic mushrooms, psychedelic, uh, uh, these psychedelic uh, um, drugs, I think there are probably a lot of questions that are going to continue to bubble up out of this uh, legislation that maybe haven't really seen as much scrutiny on the front end uh, as these lawmakers have started to have the discussion this session. Well, and I, I would just, I'd say that, you know, 10 years from now, uh, I, 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 I wouldn't have said this, you know, five years ago, but right now, I'll say 10 years from now, I think that we'll look back as a state and we'll see a lot of our drug problems, uh, our opioid crisis, uh, issues with fentanyl, uh, you know, the, you know, these, you know, and I think you know, methamphetamine use. I think that one of the things that we're going to look back and say is, wow, it, we, we now know that our ability to combat addiction on these fronts, not throw tobacco in there as well. Uh, these psychedelics have proven uh, in some studies very powerful at breaking the addiction of, of tobacco uh, and nicotine addiction. Then we're going to look back and say, who would have who would have thought? Even though there are a lot of us that did think it, uh, but who would have thought uh, that we would have combated our uh, drug issues that were leading to people uh, dying or in you know desperate situations uh, with other drugs that we'd also made illegal whenever we just cashed this wide net uh, beginning in the the late 1960s with the war on drugs and made everything that we had any sort of suspicion of uh, illegal and made it a schedule one and nearly impossible to do this kind of research with. Well, I think it's interesting though, the federal government, I mean, it's still federally illegal. That's an important point. And the federal government has allowed states to conduct research. They basically kind of stayed out of the way and said, conduct the research, do the clinical trials, 
have it in a very prescribed manner. But this this notion that we're now going kind of rapidly beyond that discussion to the point of just let's make it available and it could be a good thing for everybody that's got any number of uh, conditions, symptoms, problems. I think that's part of a much broader discussion that you, you know many may have thought about this years or decades ago, but I think it's certainly something that uh, a lot of Oklahomans probably haven't thought of in this in this context, and we'll see how that uh, how that uh, factors in in terms of any public discussion as they move this bill through the session. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.